Get your Bibles out, open it up to um, the book of Isaiah. We're in the middle of our series we've entitled Playing with Dynamite. We've been talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. I know you would think that Isaiah would be a long way away from any instruction about the Holy Spirit, but you will be amazed in just a moment at the verses that I'm going to read to you, how pertinent uh, he had, what pertinent things he had to say with regards uh, to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, this past week, I was able to fly out. I had a network of related pastors meeting in New Orleans, Louisiana. I also caught up on a phone call with regards to uh, the remnant work with Pastor Larry Stockstill. Uh, to make a long story short, it's always enlarging and encouraging to hang around pastors who have nation-shaking vision. And again, it's just a good time for me whenever these moments occur to be enlarged, to be refueled, refired up for the task of, you know, national revival. So uh, I was just most encouraged. One of the things that came out in the report that I was most encouraged by course here at legacy our culture is is that we honor the place of the holy spirit and and we're pretty much up front and center with regards to what we believe with regards to his ministry and the present working of the gifts of god but what was encouraging was i was listening uh to some of the reports from the guys that were around the table and all of them were just saying that in their locations there's a new sense of hunger and there's a new sense of thirstiness for the things of the spirit and of course, we talked about all of the reasons that might have been generated in people's lives. But I guess the bottom line is this, is that there seems to be a stir in the earth in believers' lives to once again know and understand, participate and function in the present ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. They have questions with regards to uh, spiritual gifts, with regards to the laying on of hands, the gifts of the Spirit, uh, the prophetic word, deliverance, tongues. All of these areas, there's just a new stir in people's hearts that they, that they have questions and they have a hunger to know more about this area. And what that says to me is this. It says to me that there is a stirring of the Spirit in the earth right now. He's, he's stirring people's hearts for the outpouring, the last blast outpouring that's going to happen with regards to global glory and revival. So I was just encouraged by that report. I want you to be encouraged by that report because... I don't believe, I don't believe everything's strictly falling apart. There's a lot to be concerned about. There's a lot to look at and to be frustrated with, uh, to have certainly great and grave concerns over. But the paradoxical nature of the kingdom is this, and that is while there is darkness, yes, even gross darkness on the earth, there is a light that will shine. I believe there is a move of the spirit that will yet come. And that we will see God move in miraculous ways, even in the midst of incredibly difficult times. And so it's probably appropriate and relevant that we spend time on Sundays talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to play a little bit more with dynamite this morning. I want to talk to you for just a few moments that I have with the message I've entitled Fighting the Holy Spirit. Fighting the Holy Spirit. If you'd like to catch up, by the way. You can go to the website, catch up on iTunes, and uh, you, can, you can be right up to date with us. So I encourage you to do that. But this morning, we're going to deal with fighting the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah 63, I want to read two verses, verse 9 and verse 10. 
This is out of the Old Testament, but you'll be amazed at how pertinent it sounds. Isaiah 63, verse 9, this is what we read. It says, In all their affliction, He was afflicted, and the angel of His presence saved them. You might want to underline that. The angel of His presence saved them. Literally talking about referencing the great exodus that took place out of Egypt trying to get God's people into the promised land. And as Isaiah is reflecting and as God is speaking to Isaiah, he talks in a little bit more detailed way as to some of what took place. We know lots of the details, but some of the details that took place was that there was an angel of his presence, an angel of his presence, saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bore them and carried them all the days of old. But listen to verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. Now you need to let that sink in for just a moment. Isaiah is speaking under inspiration, again talking about an instance in the life of ancient Israel as they were moving out of their deliverance into their promised land. And when they were delivered from Egypt, of course, there was the initial sense of gratitude when they watched the, the Egyptian army uh, uh, overwhelmed by the seas of the Red Sea. Uh, they celebrated, they danced. There was all sorts of wonderful, joyful happenings that took place when they came out of their deliverance. But interestingly, that God is a God who not only wants you out of your chains, He wants you into a purpose. I'll say that again. God is not only getting you out of your chains, He wants to get you into a purpose. Sometimes we stop at point one. We're happy that we no longer have our addictions, our bondages. Our life was falling apart. We open our hearts up to Jesus. He gives us a little order in our life. Puts some things back together. We get some relief. But we don't realize that God is not the God of relief. He's the God of purpose. Praise God for your relief. Everybody loves a little relief in difficult circumstances. But that's not the end of God's will. God wants to bring you into a place, into a land, into His purposes. And there they were, looking at the promise of God. The land, it was called Canaan, the promised land. Representing everything that God had for them, representing provision, representing hope, representing a future, representing good housing, representing a good job, representing everything that you're concerned about this morning, the land represented that to the Israelite people. But here they are, out of their chains, happy they're no longer in bondage, looking at their promise, God's wanting to bring them in. We know that there are giants in the land, and all of a sudden... They resist going in. Isn't that interesting? Of course, it's true. There are a lot of people that want their guilt cleansed, but they don't want to go all out for God. Are you following me? You want your fire insurance, but don't talk to me about giving your whole life to them. You know, I don't want to go to hell. I mean, hell, that's not good. But, but don't talk to me about going all out. And so what happens is, is that you've got a lot of people waving their fire insurance policy, but they're not living all out. They're resisting, listen to me, they're resisting 
the Holy One Himself. And the Bible says that in so doing, as they resist Him, the Scripture says that He begins to turn and fight against them. Now, isn't that amazing? They were complaining, they were murmuring, they made excuses, they resisted the leadership of the Lord in securing what was His will for their life. It grieved the Holy Spirit, and in turn, God began to fight them. Is that sinking in? Can I tell you something that you may not hear much? Of course, we always believe, don't we? Truth in advertising. It's very important. God is your friend, yes. Is He one that sticketh closer than a brother? Absolutely. Is God for you? Yes, He's for you. In fact, the Scripture says that He really wants to be with you always, even unto the end. But the question is, is that unconditional or is that conditional? You see, the Lord is not going with you as you practice your disobedience. I don't care what you've been taught. I'll clear this up. God does not walk with the disobedient. He's not facilitating your disobedience. He's not enabling your disobedience. He's not just winking at your disobedience. He's not doing that. If you, if you resist Him, He will not facilitate you. Now, I, I realize that's contrary to our current grace teaching. Is there grace? Yes. Grace empowers you to be obedient. But if we choose to resist the grace of God, as the Scripture says, or resist the Holy Spirit, He's not suddenly going to facilitate you in your rebellion. I can give you a great example in Exodus 33, verse 15, it's where we find the actual account, I believe, of what Isaiah was probably reflecting back to. Isaiah 33:15, God has looked at His people Israel. They, they have spurned Him. They have walked away from Him. When Moses went up to Sinai in order to get the law by which they would live their lives, they, they, they created a calf. They even called the golden calf by the name of Yahweh. It couldn't get any worse than that. And so, and so we find a chapter where God's about up to his, his nose with their rebellion. Moses is interceding. He's asking the Lord to help them with regards to moving forward. And, and I'm going to synopsize the conversation. You can go read it yourself. But I'm going to synopsize the conversation because basically Moses says, Lord, we, these are your people. I mean, I mean your, your name's on the line here. Come on now, if you just leave them out, they're hanging. People are going to wonder about you and whether you are who you say you are. It's amazing the relationship Moses and the Lord had. And the Lord looks at Moses, and the Lord's a great, he's just a, he's a great responder. He says, Moses, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'll give them the land. I'll give them what I promised. I'll make good on everything that I've ever said to my people. I'm going to make good on that. But I don't have to go with them. That's exactly what it says in Exodus 33. God will give the promise. That's what he said he would do. But he says, I'm under no obligation to go with you in this regard. And Moses, this is what was great. Moses, wisest man, understood the ways of God, literally goes, oh Lord, then keep us here. For we would rather have you than have just what you do. I use that story simply as an analogy to our modern church. 
oftentimes I think we're exactly the opposite of Moses. Lord, you really don't have to come with us. Just keep giving us what we want. Keep facilitating us. Keep enlarging us and blessing us and helping us and delivering us. And Lord, you just you just keep piling on your goodness. But we don't really want you. And I'm telling you, God is about up to here with a modern America, American church. You see, God begins, literally, Isaiah says, to fight against you. There comes a moment, I think, in every believer's life, the life of every church, when a question has to be answered. Just how much of the presence of God and the activity of the Holy Spirit do you really want in your life? Most settle for relief. Get me out of Egypt. Give me comfort. Give me peace. Give me all the things you say you'll do for me, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really interested in going all out. I had to cross that bridge. I think every believer has to cross that bridge sometime in their life. Are, are you going to just, are you just going to let him get you out of your bondage or are you going all out for him? I remember back, I, you got to remember, you know my stories. I grew up in a denominational setting. Yes, I was born again, but we didn't honor really the work of the Holy Spirit. And what happens is, is that you end up finding depleted, defeated, uh, uh, you know, ways in your life more times than you can count. And I can tell you that when God began to deal with me, this was back in 86 through the, through the years, 1986 through 89, God began to deal with me on the issue of just how much of the Holy Spirit was I willing to receive in my life. And here was the, here was the negotiation. It's all or nothing. It's not like you get half, you know, and, and God's fine with that. No, it's all or nothing. That's why we call him Lord. That's why we call him master. It's all or nothing. He's not wanting a part of your life. You give him all your life. He's not interested in a portion of you. He wants all of you. You don't compartmentalize him. He gets everything. All right? There's not this negotiated settlement we have with him. And I remember when he began to deal with me because I was in that sort of framework. My framework was, well, Lord, I, I think we can go this far with you. But if we go all the way with you, you know, people might not understand it. They may not get it. It, it may not help. It may not help my future. How do you put that on your resume? I mean, and the Lord keep go, it keeps going. It's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. And he deals, I believe, with his people that way. Is it all? Or will it be nothing? It's all or nothing. And ultimately, praise God, I reached the place. Because what happens, the longer you live in that tension of being half half in, sort of half out, or, or sort of half responsive and half rebellious, do you realize that you're the most miserable human being in the universe at that moment? You're not, that's why God said to the Laodiceans, he says you're neither hot nor cold. He said, I don't, I don't, I just, I'll just spew that out of my mouth. You'd be better off being, you'd be better off being cold to the things of God than you are kind of half and half. Ultimately, God would rather you be hot to the things of the Lord. And, and, and gratefully, I came to my senses and uh, said, okay, Lord, I, I want you all. I, I'm not going to do life. I'm not going to do ministry. I'm just not going to do it anymore without everything you've got. I don't care where it leads me as long as it's in the book. And, and, and if you said it's possible in this book, I believe the book. I will embrace the book. And if that's what you say, I, I embrace it. I may not understand it. I may not get it. It may not fit for the moment, but I promise you, I will embrace it. And what I found out is that when you want it all, it may cost you all. 
And many, many people don't like the price tag. But you see, God is very sensitive about how we, how we treat the person of the Holy Spirit. In fact, if we treat him wrong and fight against him, God says that he will fight against us. And I, you probably don't need this taught. To fight against God is foolish. You, you understand that, right? That there's no winning. It's, it's not like you'll, you'll be the exception to the rule. No way. Now, I don't think, I don't think these things of resisting God happen just instantly overnight. I've said this for years. I don't think people all of a sudden wake up one morning and they say to themselves, oh, today's the day I'm going to rob a bank. Yes, today's the day. I think that sounds good. Let's rob a bank today. I think there are probably processes that a heart goes through until it finally reaches the place that it's deceived to the place that it thinks it can rob a bank and get away with it. I don't think that people wake up one Sunday uh, and find themselves resistant to the Holy Spirit. I don't believe it works that way. I believe there's probably some sort of incremental happening that if we don't recognize it, leads us to the place of a hard heart. Now, I am glad that God is long-suffering. Isn't that good news? I'm glad that the Bible says that He's long-suffering. I, I do teach this. It's long-suffering, not eternally suffering. God, God's patience it is amazingly longer than mine. Uh, but His patience has an end point. It doesn't last eternally. So we need to understand that while he's patient with us, at the same time, he's, he's wooing and drawing us to the place where we say yes and are open to all that the Holy Spirit has for us. And we need to be highly sensitive to that and to his ministry, along with identifying the processes that may cause him to fight against us. So, so I'm going to get into this. I'm going to go through just several different levels, these incremental levels of how we can potentially resist the Holy Spirit, as it says here. The process of fighting the Holy Spirit. And there are different levels. The reason I'm going through this, maybe you don't fight with the Holy Spirit. Well, great. Great. This will help you identify it early, should it ever happen in your life. For those that might have felt like you've resisted the work of God in your life, maybe this will help you as well. Begin to say, you know, I need to quit fighting Him and begin to receive Him and embrace Him. So I'm going to go through what I, I've defined as different levels of resistance. Number one, level one. I call it grieving the Holy Spirit. Grieving the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, verse 30. Guys, can you post it? And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You know, that whole context in that Ephesian passage has to deal with unrighteous anger, lying, stealing, corrupt or idle talking, bitterness, Sometimes you just ought to read. I mean, you ought to read the whole Bible, shouldn't you? <laughs> but, but Ephesians 4 talks about all of these character defects and all of these things going on in believers' lives. And Paul goes and says, these things can grieve the Holy Spirit who's inside of you. Now, the word grieve means to inflict pain, injury, distress, or anguish, which produces sorrow. So when you grieve the Holy Spirit, what you're doing is, is that you're producing anguish, really, in the heart of God, which makes Him sad. Have you ever thought about that? God gets sad when He looks at some of His children's life. He sees the potential and the possibility, 
But he sees also that there's something going on in your life that's grieving him and it saddens him because because until he deals with this, you can't have everything that's available in him. I'll just say this, that, that if you find yourself unrighteously angry, God wants to deliver you from that. You find yourself lying. God wants to deliver you from that. If you find yourself talking corruptly or idly, God wants to help you circumspect your mouth. God wants to take bitterness and unforgiveness out of your life. All the things that are mentioned there, the Holy Spirit wants to deal with that. Why? So you can move into his purpose with power. But when we choose not to, then you see, that's the moment we make him sad. Now, if the presence of God means anything to you, why would you want to make God sad? Now, granted, I suppose we've all done it. I looked at the list and I thought, well, yeah, there, I know, I'm, I'm quite sure I've, I've made God sad and I have grieved the Holy Spirit. See, the issue isn't avoiding it. The issue is just saying, yeah, you're right. I, I, I grieve the Holy Spirit and Holy Spirit, I don't want to grieve you anymore. I, I, I want you to work in me. I want you to refine me. I want you to do your, do your processes in me so that you can move unencumbered through me. That's the first level. I believe that's where it starts. And what happens is, is that I just started to see this, this incrementalism that when we refuse to work maybe at this one level, that what happens is it, the hardness, the resistance or the fighting begins to kick up even more and more. I've often taught in the areas of sin, you know, the Bible calls that a reprobate mind, the steps of reprobation. That, that a mind doesn't instantly enter into egregious outlandish sin, but usually there's this incremental slide that takes place that gets a person over here to a place they never thought they would be. Well, I honestly believe in some ways this is how it works with the presence of God, the Holy Spirit in our lives. Level one, grieving the Holy Spirit. Level two, quenching the Holy Spirit. Guys, go ahead and post. First Thessalonians 5.19, Paul wrote there, he says, do not quench the Spirit. Literally, it means to extinguish a flame. That's what quench means, to extinguish a flame. I don't know if you've ever been joyful or happy about something and and you've been excited and you shared it with somebody and they were a part of the proverbial bucket brigade. You had something exciting to share and the minute it came out of your mouth, they had their bucket ready for you and they just doused that thing. We often call that kind of person the wet blanket. They're the ones that no matter what thing could be exciting that's happening, they're going to be the one that throws the wet blanket. And the whole imagery of it is that they're, they're quenching or suppressing what it is that you're trying to share with them. Well, that's exactly what Paul's saying with regards to the Holy Spirit. That, that the imagery of the Scripture oftentimes is that He's a flame. And that out of that flame comes energy and power and explosiveness. And there are moments that we as a people can quench Him and it's like dousing a bucket uh, over that flame or throwing a wet blanket over that. I was reading an author, and I, and I didn't post this on the screen, but as I was reading this author, he suggested 10 ways that could happen. And I, and I don't know that I'm going to go through all 10 ways here, but let me just give you some examples of how we might quench the Holy Spirit. For instance, when we get excited about the atmosphere of worship, but we dull our ears to the truth of the preaching of God's Word. 
Yeah, I've heard this so many times. Yeah, I like the worship. It's an incredible worship experience. And you know what? I'm glad for an incredible worship experience. That's a part of what we do. But if, but if your ears are dull to the word, then you're suppressing or you're quenching the Holy Spirit. How about when, when you know that there are issues in your life or problems in your life and you know it? Now, can I just say this? Some people don't know it. And, and, and if they don't know it, sometimes they need to help understanding it. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, you do know it. And part of the reason you know it is because the Holy Spirit has been bringing those areas to your understanding and to your knowledge. But when you refuse to let Him work on those areas that you know needs work, and you resist that, that's a part of quenching the Holy Spirit. Pride, showmanship, when it begins to distort the simplicity of the gospel. I've been in excited, I've been, you know, I've been in charismatic circles for years. And I've watched things from, from worship leaders, worship bands, pastors and preachers. I've seen what I would call showmanship. Showmanship is nothing more than pride. I mean, everybody has a style, I get that. But, but sometimes style that runs amok is, is showmanship. And what happens is, is that you begin to quench the simplicity of the moment. And, and what happens is you quench the work of the Holy Spirit. See, there are all sorts of ways to quench the Holy Spirit in our life. You know, every time we refuse to respond to authority or there's a breakdown in unity, you're quenching the work of the Holy Spirit. If, if, if there's a moment that maybe we're worshiping and, and God's wanting to bring it down to another level, and we neglect that, we could be quenching the Holy Spirit. When humility is no longer evident, you're quenching the Holy Spirit. When you want your own agenda more than a greater kingdom agenda, you're quenching the Holy Spirit. And you can see incrementally that you may start by grieving Him, but then you can begin to enter into quenching Him until finally we go to number three, level three, and that's re uh, resistance or opposition to the Holy Spirit. Resistant, uh, excuse me, resistance or opposition to the Holy Spirit. Acts 7.51, it says this, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. How would you love to hear a sermon like that? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so did you. The word resist actually means to strive against or literally oppose. Oppose. Now, again, the context of Acts 7 is Stephen uh, preaching to the religious system. He's preaching uh, to the Jewish religious leadership of that day, and they absolutely go ballistic. They go crazy. They just go nuts. They, they don't want to hear it. Uh, they've already had six chapters of incredible loss in temple attendance because everybody's getting converted to Christianity. So no one's showing up at temple anymore. Everybody's going off to this new thing. And, and, and they're aggravated on numerous levels. And, and so as Stephen begins to preach this thing, they literally begin to, to scream and gnash and tear their clothes. And ultimately what happens is that they, they stone Stephen. They get so mad at him, so hostile at his message that they literally pick up stones and Stephen becomes the first martyr in the history of the church. And, and, and despite the fact that we could grieve over his martyrdom, 
the cool part of that passage is it's the only time in Scripture after Jesus has ascended to heaven, been seated at the right hand of God the Father, it's the only time we ever see Jesus standing is when he sees Stephen being martyred. And there's something that just gives me goosebumps when, when I consider that. That when there are people all over the world giving up their lives for the sake of the gospel, they're literally being martyred. If you want to know when, when Jesus stands, because he stands to no man. Not anymore. His name is the name above every name. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. He, he, he is in a class by himself. Why would he stand for anyone? Well, the scripture tells us that when someone lays down their life for the sake of the gospel, I just, I believe it. I believe he stands. Jesus stands in honor of one of his who in like manner laid his life down for the cause of the gospel. But the point being is that the religious system had so, had, had become so intractable. They had such a hardening of their, their spiritual arteries that it was no longer just grieving it was no longer just quenching, but now there was resistance. We're going, we're going to oppose the very work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I just wanted to share this morning that I, I believe as a pastor and as a shepherd uh, that I have a responsibility to bring order to this house. And you know that. Any of you that have journeyed with me long know that I believe in the present workings of the Holy Spirit, but I also believe that there's divine order. There's a difference between the liberty of the Spirit and anarchy. These two concepts are not equal. Liberty brings life. Anarchy brings confusion. Uh, liberty brings peace. Anarchy brings uneasiness. And that's not an easy job. Can I tell you that's not an easy job? Because some... And I'm not soliciting any pity, by the way. Because, because some people... Uh, think that, you know, you just, it's kind of like, let it rip potato chip, let it go, whatever God does, that's cool. And you know, some, sometimes that is alienating, and sometimes it, it's not in corporate unity. And as, as a pastor, I'm constantly, I'm constantly asking myself, okay, is, is, is this the Lord for us? Because you see, when we gather like this, it's not just about you, nor is it just about me. It's about us. And so somebody's got to consider what's good for us. And, and so you've got to work through, though, these things that says, are you grieving? Are you quenching? Are you resisting? But at the same time, a pastor is saying, I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. I don't want to resist him or quench him. You know what? I don't want people to presume upon him either and to take advantage of them. There are some people who come to church with the liberty we enjoy, and they're going to do their thing and take advantage of liberty. Are you following me? And they're in anarchy. Their lives are out of order. You know, I don't care how many dances you do and how high you jump. I want to see how straight you walk. Come on, I'm all for saying amen, hallelujah. By the way, I need, it's kind of quiet here today. I need to get my, my amen paddle back. I don't want someone to come in here and just get in the flesh and fake the Holy Ghost. Say, well, who makes that call? I make that call. Why do you get to make it? Because I'm the shepherd. What do I say? Otherwise, it's anarchy. So, when pastor says, please pray for me, I mean that. Because you know what? I don't want to resist the Holy Spirit. I don't want to quench the Holy Ghost. I don't want to grieve Him any more than you do. But here's, here's what we've got to learn. We've got to learn that, that 
Order's got to be brought to it because what happens is, is what many churches have done, they've decided they're not even going to deal with the issue. They just shut it down. Now, I don't, I don't want to do that. In fact, I think it's, it's, it's a problem if you do do that. Because the minute you shut him down is the minute God begins to fight against you. Say, so they don't want that. It's just easy. They say, I just, I just I'm not even going to deal with it anymore. In fact, can I just share with you next week? I'm only, I know I've only got a little short time to speak to you, but, but I, I got something brewing in me out of Acts 19 that is going to be a powerful thing, uh, talking about the revival in Ephesus. I can't go there. It's, it's, it's in me. It's trying to get out right now. It's trying, to, it's trying to break out of the can right now. I can't do that. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you right now, the church in America has decided they don't want to deal, they want to control what happens Therefore, we're just going to let the Holy Spirit be another night. Or we're going to let the Holy Spirit do something in another venue. And truth is, the Holy, if the Holy Spirit can't get the number one place in a local body, then he isn't negotiating other places. Amen. I need to take notes on myself sometimes. I tell you what. I do. Amen. <laughs> Moving on. Level four. You go through the processes. What did I say? I said grieving, quenching, resisting, and now you get to blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 12, beginning with verse 31, let me just share something here. Matthew 12, 31. It says this, Jesus is speaking. He says, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Spirit, which will not be forgiven men, Anyone who speaks the word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. How, how, many, how many messages have you heard on that one? No, we dodge these things. Let me, let me just share this with you. Blasphemy. Blasphemy means to injure, speak abusively, or slander. Now, one of the greatest questions, and, and I run across this usually once a year. Somebody will ask me about these passages. What's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And so I, I get questions on this. And if you're concerned that you have ever uh, felt like you blasphemed the Holy Spirit, if, if, you, if you would say, you know, I, I think maybe I blasphemed the Holy Spirit, I'm really concerned about this. Can I just say that if you're concerned about that, you probably haven't. Because most who blaspheme the Holy Spirit don't even get it. So, so if your, your guilt mechanism or your concern mechanism is still operating in you, then rejoice. I always tell people, if you feel convicted, you ought to say hallelujah. The minute you quit feeling convicted is the minute God quits dealing with you. So whenever you feel that conviction coming on you, you ought to say praise God. If, I know it doesn't feel good, but what it means is God is still loving you. Reaching out to you. And so usually people who are concerned about whether or not they blaspheme the Holy Spirit, I look at them and say, if you're concerned about it, don't worry about it. Because you, you haven't yet. But it's still in the scripture. And the question is, what does it mean? This is what I have come to the best description of it. It's to give the devil credit for the work of the Holy Spirit. To give the devil credit for the work of the Holy Spirit. Because if you'll read the context here, they've been calling Jesus Beelzebub. In fact, they'd actually been saying to him that the deliverances that he'd been doing were actually the work of the devil. And he goes into 
this instruction how, as to how can Satan cast out Satan? And, and, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? And Jesus goes through this whole thing by basically saying, listen, if, if you're giving Satan the credit for a true work of the Holy Spirit, then you're treading on incredibly dangerous territory. I'll never forget years ago, I mentioned I was in a denominational system and you had to go before a credentialing board in order to get ordained or affirmed. And uh, I knew because of the denominational stand on the renewal movement, this was back again in the 80s, you know, they were very, very concerned. A lot of their guys, you know, they were, they were getting deceived from the, you know, modern charismatic renewal. And uh, I had not embraced all of it yet. But I knew I was going into this credentialing board and I knew some of the questions they would ask. And one of the questions they asked was, what do you think of the modern renewal movement? What do you think of all this activity? And that was really, that was really a way of asking. That was kind of their, their clandestine way of asking, what do you think of tongues? Because that was really the biggest issue. As sad as it was, you could embezzle from the church and you could run off with your secretary and you could be restored. But you ever spoke with tongues, it was over. That's the craziest thing I'd ever seen in my life. It's like, like if you spoke in tongues, they you know, put the scarlet T right there. And I knew what they were asking and... and and I gave my answer, and it was, it was probably, I was probably navigating this politically correct trail. And one of the gentlemen decided he was going to press the issue with me. And, and he literally said this. He said, he said do you, I, I mean, where do you think that originates from? Do you, think, do you think that's from God, that whole movement's from God, or do you think that may be from the enemy? He was, he was, he was moving me in that direction. And I looked at him and I just said, listen, I don't know, this may cost me ordination. I don't know. I don't, I don't pretend to be an expert in what's going on in those arenas. I have not been a part of those arenas. But here's all I know. Uh, I'll, come, I'll quote Gamaliel. I remember that. If this be of God, men and brethren, then, then we're silly to oppose it. If it's not of God, it'll fizzle out itself. But if you're looking at me to say that these people or that the speaking in tongues is somehow of the devil, it ain't coming out of my mouth. That isn't coming out of my mouth. I may not get it. I may not understand it. I'm, I may have some questions about it. I, I'm sure there's much more I can learn about it. Maybe I'm not even comfortable currently with it. But I, I'm going to be real careful before I ascribe something to the devil that may be coming from God himself. That, that's blasphemy. We need, to be, we need to be real careful before we say, you know, we may not understand something and we may have concerns about something, but I'm real careful before I throw it to the enemy's camp. We need to be real, real careful about what comes out of our mouth in that area. Now, again, these are just the incremental ways this may happen in your life. Now, I want to leave you with this. It's only going to take me just another couple minutes, so just bear with me. How do I get, how do I get the fire back? How do I, how do I restore my passion with regards to the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to get through this really fast. Write this down three points real quick. Number one, it's repentance. Everything starts with repentance. I put on the screen, I think, dry the wood. If you want the fire of God to be back in your life again, get the wood dry. How do you get the wood dry? Repentance. That's what dries out the heart. Repentance. I believe there needs to be a movement 
in spirit-filled churches all across America. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this out loud so you can go quote me somewhere. There needs to be a movement in spirit-filled churches across America to corporately apologize to the Holy Spirit. We treat him like a weird uncle. We put him in the back room. We hide him from people. I'm not kidding. We, that's, that's who we are now. We, spirit-filled people. This is what I'm going to get into next week. You see, it's coming into the can already. It's coming out. It's coming. Listen, listen. We, we have a generation who has seen such silliness and non-credible people from charismatic pulpits. We have watched leaders in our movement fall from immorality and we've not corrected it. And, and to the place where we have a netted generation. And I'm telling you, my son, my, uh, praise God, I love my son. And I know what some of the processes he's gone through. But they start gravitating toward this neo-Baptist sort of understanding where they want to be slick and they want to be trendy and they want to be cool and they want to be all these things. But there's no power of God in their life. They can play the modern tunes, but there ain't no anointing on their life. And we have gravitated that direction. And my question is, who's going to leave the legacy of the work of the Spirit in our kids' lives? Now, see, this is just the introduction to next week. Because let me tell you something. My wife and I paid a price for the things of the Spirit. My kids aren't going to grow up thinking the Holy Ghost is some weird uncle. He's their only hope. What are you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm already getting to next week. I gotta, I gotta just stop right there. But it is, don't we? We put them in back rooms, hide them from people, reserve them for the small groups. We do that in small group. We we do that on midweek service. Well, really. Well, I bet you the Holy Spirit is just so happy that you would make room for him at midweek. If he isn't worthy up front and center, Sunday morning, first day of the week, come on, we're not negotiating at that point. We're embarrassed by him by and large. And we just need, we just, I'll be the first one. Holy Ghost, I repent from any moment. That I didn't want you up front and central. I gotta let that one go now. It is, it's just, we just need to repent. Number two, I use the word transfer. You gotta dwell where the fire exists. How do you get the fire back? Well, fire's transferable. You won't get on fire hanging around wet wood. You go to churches, just a bunch of wet wood, and they wonder why they aren't delivered. Then they come to me and want to go to Encounter Weekend and then go back to their wet wood. I'm just truth in advertising. They feel like they're called to go back to death. Well, okay. Then don't complain you're there. But I'm just telling you, if you want to get the fire back, you got to hang around the fire. Get around people, churches who have the fire, and you'll find that it will jump on you. Say, well, I don't, I, I, you know, I don't know about, hey, you hang around people that do this all the time, you'll do it after a while. I mean, it's just. See, I can feel the anointing dropped about two minutes ago. You can be kindling for that. That's what I had to do. I mean, I'll never forget the first time I was in services of this form. I remember I was like, I was like this first. And then it was like. 
And then it was kind of like this. And then I finally got here. I mean, I finally got there. Praise God, he's long-suffering, right? Yeah, 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 okay. You know the story, you've heard the story about Wesley was asked one time why people left the traditional churches to go to the fields to listen to him speak. Because he'd do field preaching. And he was asked this on numerous occasions. Why would people leave what would be a climate-controlled, decent, nice environment in order to go listen to you out there in the middle of a field where it could be inclement weather, it could be hot, it could be any one of a number of things. Why would people leave what they know in, in, a, in a church and go to the field and listen to you speak? And Wesley would always say this phrase. He said, God lights John Wesley on fire. And the people come to watch him burn. Yeah. So anyway, every now and then, even pastor burns. That's why you, you want to... And then lastly, number three, desperation, and we're done. You got to cry out for the match. You got to cry out for the match. Lord, send the fire. Lord, ignite me. He ain't going to do that sovereignly. You got to want it. You got to ask. And he'll send the fire. Between the years of 1872 and 1968 in Yosemite National Park, there was a late evening activity that took place that was called the Great Firefall. They would build, the, the park rangers would build a great fire on top of the 3,000 foot summit on top of Glacier Point. They would get it uh, roaring. They would get lots of hot coals, hot embers. And then at the end of the day, in a wheelbarrow, they would drop that fire off the side of this cliff, 3,000 feet. And it was a never-to-be-forgotten firefall. If you ever want to see what it looks like, it, it was incredibly beautiful. You can Google that on the Internet and just, just put Yosemite National Park Firefall. And you'll get pictures and images of what that looked like uh, during those years. But there was an interesting little process that went on as they went through that. There were people at the bottom of, uh, the, bottom of the cliff and there were those at the top of the summit. And uh, those at the top would holler down, hello, Glacier Point. And the other one would holler up, hello, Camp Curry. One would say, is the fire ready? And the voices from on top of the cliff would say, the fire's ready. And then there'd be this lone voice that would cry out. They would say, well, then let the fire fall. And at that moment, they would dump those embers off the side of that cliff in a never-to-be-forgotten display. It looked like a river of fire that was coming down that cliffside. I believe this is the hour that from our churches and from our lives, we need to, we need to look to the heavens again and, and, and we need to ask and say, Lord, is the fire ready? And you know what his answer would be? Fire's ready. And we need to cry out, then let the fire fall. And what will happen will be a never-to-be-forgotten moment in your life that you will be ignited to do the purposes of God. Let the fire fall. Stand with me, will you?